And you are listening to the Quarter to Three Movie Podcast for Moonrise Kingdom. I am here today with Christian Malarski. Lazy Eye. Mm. And Too soon. with our Moonrise Kingdom tagline, Kelly Wand. Kisses are like the Harry Potter movies. By the fourth one, they're kind of interchangeable, but still always end in tears. <laughs> Very sweet, Kelly Wand. See? Wes Anderson jarred something loose. Well, I look forward to hearing more about that. But first, Dingus, don't don't spoil anything about Moonrise Kingdom. I I think, I don't know about Kelly Wand, but Dingus, I know you and I went in having not so much as seen a trailer from the movie. So, Dingus, if you can, tell us a little bit about what this Moonrise Kingdom thing is. Because, by the way, I don't think it's opened in many places around the country. This is one of these classic limited releases. If you're listening, you may not have a chance to see Moonrise Kingdom, so we're going to ask you to bail in a little bit. Before you bail, before we spoil it for you, Dingus, why don't you give us some more information? All right, well, this week we saw Moonrise Kingdom, mm. a 2012 movie about me and my first girlfriend. <laughs> it was directed by Wes Anderson and written by him and Roman Coppola. It mm. stars Kara Hayward and Jared Gilman. Alexander Desplat did the original music. Randall Poster did the music supervision. Robert D. Yeoman did the cinematography. Yeah, he did. Andrew Weisblum edited the movie. Gerald Sullivan <clears throat> was the art director. And Adam Stockhausen did the production design. Moonrise Kingdom is rated PG-13 for sexual content what? and smoking. <laughs> That's right, Kelly Wong. Oh, yeah. Look, Tom, smoking in a PG-13 movie. Soapbox. Break. Well, well, we all know what year this movie was set in, so it's from a very different time. Yeah, if this movie had come out the year that it was set in, it would have a different rating. <laughs> that's the stupidest shit I've ever heard. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard this. Come on. <laughs> I like how you contort yourself to make this rule. <laughs> and every week there's a new exception to it. Well, what about the non-smoke? What was the other one, Dingus? Sexual content, you said? Sexual content and smoking. He Although, you know what? We're getting into spoiler territory. Let's yeah, save it for the podcast. Smoking's problems. a huge spoiler. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> well, you know, I have to say, I heard one of those dipwads from um, <laughs> so, some NPR show where uh, they... Oh, Film Week. So, Film Week... Film Week. I listen... <laughs> what? When I listen to Film Week, if, I, if they start talking about a movie I know I'm going to see, I turn down... The, the radio, because I don't want to hear them talk about that. That so, is the stupidest thing. Well, wait, hold on, Kelly Wan. It gets stupider. Right. So, I um, love the word dipwads, by the way. That's, that's, yeah, that's, open, I never hear Tom say that. That's something that's Edward that's Norton would say. Yeah. And then wait, it goes to NPR. NPR is the case. Well, so anyway, it was uh, maybe it was when Dark Shadows came out. They were talking about. Now, what did we see last week, by the way? Chernobyl. Yeah, okay, that's it. Right. So they start talking about Chernobyl Diaries. <laughs> Chernobyl wasn't enough of a mnemonic device. I <laughs> Wait, Chernobyl what? Oh, yeah. 
the diaries they didn't keep. So they start talking about this on Film Week, and I turn it down because I don't, you know, I don't know anything about it. I know I'm going to see it that weekend. I don't want to ruin it. So I turn it down, and I leave it turned down for a while. And I think, okay, it's going to be, and I go about doing my business, and then later on I turn it back up, and they're talking about something about a someone playing a Boy Scout leader who's ineffectual. I'm like, okay, this isn't Chernobyl Diaries anymore. I can listen. And they're talking, and they're talking, and then someone said something about inappropriate sexual contact between 11-year-olds. And I'm like, oh, this guy is stupid. What movie are they talking about? got to be Chernobyl. <laughs> And then he freaking mentions Wes Anderson. And I was like, oh, God. And I had to frantically turn it down, but it was too late. I had heard those two things about the movie. Why are and- you listening to anything on the radio about movies? I love listening to people talk about movies, as people who listen to this podcast might understand. But I don't <laughs> like listening to people talk about movies that I haven't seen that I'm going to see. So uh, on Film Week, they're talking about, you know foreign stuff or stupid you know i i would right. like to hear them talk about dark shadows for instance and how awful it is i i enjoy that kind of thing did they i don't think i heard that one um because he turned it down just because <laughs> i was gonna see you for two you could have had a movie you didn't give a shit about spoiled instead but anyway the point being so i would say that the the pg-13 disclaimers even those are a slight spoiler for Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, they weren't for me because Henry Sheehan or some other dipwad had already ruined it for me. Uh, so anyway, he ruined the sex part. He didn't mention the smoking. That's true. I at least did not know that that was coming. That the smoking and that the smoking would be done by the ineffectual Cub Scout leader. By the way, but we'll and get into that shortly. Just and uh, who else? Sam, fucker. Oh, oh, yeah. You know what? Save that for the podcast where we're spoiling right. things, though. I'll call you a fucker later, then. Thank you. Thank you. Let's table that. Table the fuckerings. Uh, all right. So let's see. So, Dingus, I'm sorry. Did we leave you? I think you'd come to the uh, the rating and the, the MPAA disclaimer, so I think we're done with you. Am I correct? No, no. I'm. You're absolutely correct, and I'm ready to hear the records that this movie has broken. Okay, so uh, it's not really fair to talk about how much money it's made because it is such a limited release. In its second weekend, it's up to $1.7 million. Wait, what? It was packed every, uh, I don't know. Well, it's not. Yeah, it's not. I'm sure it's not playing in many theaters. It's not in many towns. uh, You know, this is not a box office juggernaut, nor is it intended to be. Uh, But here's where you get some more indication for on, on Rotten Tomatoes. The percentage of reviews of Moonrise Kingdom that are positive, 95%. Uh, on Metacritic, which averages the rating that it's received from reviews that give ratings, it's at 83. So uh, I think we can say... What does that discrepancy mean, that 15 off, not the... I think the discrepancy <laughs> is that people who use ratings are... Fascinating. Uh, they're just they're reluctant to go too high, or they're just not as fond of it. You know, people love it, but maybe not as much. They don't love it enough to give it a ninety-five or whatever on whatever scale they're using. You but know it's what? It's all oh, okay. it's all stupid math. I don't know that it is for movie reviews. I don't it's know if movie stu- reviews do that game review thing where they only review give ratings within the seven to nine scale. I think a lot of movie reviews will use like one to five stars or letter grades, like like uh, Entertainment Weekly, for instance. Um, it's just so weird to me that you're the you're a famous hater of math shit, and you're in charge of this, as you called it, stupid math section of the podcast. Well, we, ironic we, to you? we like, well, that's what I was going to say. We like on our podcast a little dramatic irony. 
So there you go. I thought we just like stupid math. <laughs> like, okay, well, we're qualified to continue talking about the movie because we read on the internet. Like well, Kelly wants so the alternative is to have me do the synopsis, and, and that's not going to happen. And I can do the math. Let's do it one week just to see. Because I want to. I want a shot at the math. Uh, you know what? You could do the math and the synopsis one week. What do you think of that? No. Or I tell you what, you write the synopsis, I'll read it. I write down the math, you read it. We'll do it. Some, we'll do something like that sometime. You know, we'll mix it up one week. Well, we'll keep people guessing. One of these weeks, Kelly Wand will do math, and maybe Tom Chick will do the synopsis. Who knows? Speaking of the synopsis, Kelly Wand. Oh, yeah. But but it has broken records, hasn't it? As far as pers, it, it it's got some great uh, records that it's broken per screen. Right. Oh, I was not aware of that. So, Dingus, you've obviously have some insight into the math because I, I remember that that statistic Let's coming all up. Do it, then. Well, I remember that statistic coming up during uh, I guess it was Shame, which had a limited release, and there was a lot of demand. People wanted to see Michael Fassbinder's dog. <laughs> I was impressed by it, to be honest. <laughs> uh, so that that had a, a a sort of a high like per seat rating in terms of its income. So, Dingus, you're saying you've heard in that the Price Kingdom is also in that same league. Right, right. It's a it broke per screen records. Okay. Well, congratulations. Wise. <laughs> Kelly Wand. It's about young kids. Thin ice, mister. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly Wand, what are we calling this week's synopsis? Uh, Moonrise King Dopesis. I almost. Well, you know what? Well, well uh, yeah, rock. No, well, I was going to say, I almost don't want. I Well. To hear it? No, I didn't want to write it. I so. do. Well, that's exactly so the same thing. You didn't want to write it. I don't want to hear it. I do want to hear it, but for the same reasons you didn't want to write it, I think I had some reluctance about it. I'm guessing we're all very warm and fuzzy on this thing. I made some comment after seeing the movie that Dingus mocked me for, and I suspect we all kind of feel we have a very pleasant buzz going from having seen this movie. Uh, and so, Kelly White, is your synopsis going to harsh my buzz? No. But it's short, because that's the way I... It's a Wes Anderson movie. Plus, you fuckers are getting a Prometheopsis next week, so (laughs) get off my ass. Can't wait for that. All right, so give us what you know for Moonrise Kingdom. This is how long they should probably all be, but sometimes I go off on a Taylor Kitsch flame all. (laughs) Moonrise Kingdopsis. You ready? Rock and roll. Bob Balaban's a Travelocity gnome on an island telling me that the stuff I'm about to see... Do you like it yet, Tom? I don't know. Keep going. All right. Give it a minute. <laughs> Bob Balaban's a Travelocity gnome Kelly, on an I just want to say, hold on real quick. I did hear a Bob Balaban uh, interview where he said he was dressed as a garden gnome. So it's not that I don't like it. It's just that I've heard it. Uh, from him. I, ha- I haven't. That's why you got me giggling right away. Sorry. All right, so Kelly Wan, take three. Bob Balaban's a garden travelocity gnome on an island, telling me that the stuff I'm about to see happen happened in 1965 in New England, just like Dark Shadows, which also featured a precocious young lady pouncing on people. I can relate. (laughs) That one took me a minute, but now I do like it, Kelly Wan. Yeah, it kind of grew on me. It's, It's hard, though. The challenge is with me, Tom. You shouldn't dread it. I'm the dreader. I think he says the name of the island, but I can't hear him over the wind, so for fun, I pretend it's Amity. Bill Murray and Frances McDormand are married lawyers, although she's also banging Bruce Willis, who's like the lighthouse police chief or something. She has a real thing for widow's peaks, huh, guys? 
They have three interchangeable Wes Anderson movie kid sons and a statuesque young daughter with intense blue eyes who looks at shit constantly through binoculars. Although she does live in a lighthouse, so why is that a red flag? Her mom, Frances McDormand, considers her troubled because of this, although the mom uses a bullhorn to summon them to dinner, which is technically just binoculars, but sound-based. And uni. Not by. She keeps a book called How to Deal with Your Precocious, Emotionally Troubled, Kleptobibliomaniac Daughter with the Binoculars and Knee Socks in a hiding place that could probably be improved on, her daughter's nightstand. Since this opsis makes me a writer, not a civilian, I'm qualified to dispense unsolicited, legally actionable psychological advice. And my counsel to parents is to just let your daughter run away with a Boy Scout and hang out with them for a week in a lagoon and fall in love and marry them and get electrocuted every time they make out because she should at least have one awesome fling before the realities of adult relationships grind her heart to powder. And if you have a son, teach him to shoot straight because not every chick he hooks up with is going to be quick on the lefty scissors. Anyway, the girl's name is Susie, which she spells with two Zs. (laughs) It gets dumber. And she's in love with this 10-year-old Boy Scout named Sam, because he snuck through a secret door under some church pews to hit on her backstage. At my personal favorite musical, Noah's Ark. It's like Titanic meets Dr. Doolittle. (laughs) See where I had to go. Like most ancient writings. Unless they met before in a sequence Wes Anderson doesn't consider whimsical enough to depict, Sam falls hard for Susie because she's in a raven costume. Hells yeah, bitch. The darker the plumage, the sweeter the juice. Orphanhood hasn't hampered Sam's education. He even knows to give a chick flowers when she starts going into too much detail about her footwear, which even I, a romantic genius, only learned six words ago. I guess, ironically, considering her birdhood, she has a pet kitty cat, no name given, and she also steals library books about fantastical adventures that I guess are by different authors, although the covers all look sort of like she drew them. She tells him she only steals them because she wanted to have a secret. I guess she's not privy to that many with binoculars. He likes to smoke weed and pass out while his chick's reading to him down by the crick. I can relate. Despite the fact that he bagged the cutest 13-year-old on Nantucket in under 30 seconds just by expressing disinterest in her castmates, the other scouts all hated him, and when Ed Norton sends them out to bring Sam back to camp and I guess put him in a tent that's less cuttable, they try to comically murder him a few times, but luckily only the dog dies, and another kid stabbed with scissors. Ah, young love. Despite his unpopularity with his peers and popularity with the ladies, Sam's an even awesomer scout than Lothario and catches a turtle named Albert for them to eat, but she catches an unnamed fish that they eat instead. Although from what I know of turtles from cartoons, Albert's not going anywhere. I used to say I'm a pesco-vegetarian because fish don't make sounds when you kill them, but it's also because you can't write names on them either. You just have to remember what you named them. Like Wes Anderson movie kids. Fish, fucked at birth twice. I can relate. (laughs) This is the stupidest fucking thing ever spoken. (laughs) Sam also tells young Susie, after their first French kiss, that their upcoming first efforts at sex might also be preceded by him wetting the bed. I can relate. 
sex is kind of wetting the bed too, but for adults and with smaller diapers. Huh, guys? Luckily, the kids are saved from their own happiness twice by various combinations of their parents, cops, scoutmasters, the elements, and social services, a.k.a. Tilda Swinton wearing Jackie Kennedy clothes, who flies in on a seaplane to take Sam back to Alcatraz for electroshock therapy, although based on his resistance to lightning, it probably wouldn't have helped. (laughs) Remember Taylor Kitsch had that thing, too. That's a weird new summer 2012 movie thing, is lightning resistance. (laughs) Taser. Sidebar, if I was the dog actor who played Snoopy, I'd be watching the dailies for this movie and going, interesting, I take an off-screen arrow through the neck, and I'm toast, but the kid's unscathed after lightning. Fuck you, Wes Anderson. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, except for the dog and the fish and the door of the treehouse and Bill Murray's eye, everything works out in the end, more or less. Ed Norton learns that there isn't more to life than being a disgraced scoutmaster. After being consistently set up as a ramrod who has his T's dotted and his I's crossed, he doesn't notice his whole troop's missing till he's halfway through that morning's centerfold of Corn News Hourly. Bruce Willis getting arbitrarily dumped by McDormand for not being as self-pitying as Bill Murray, but kind of gets back at her in a way by adopting Sam so the kid can pursue his courtship with her daughter. Well, he parks in the driveway every day. Ha ha. Sam bests his archenemy, the scout, with sinisterly reddish hair by rabbit-punching his wound repeatedly. Although the kid also flatlines right before they grapple. So, <laughs> a fair fight. I didn't learn any sadistic techniques I'm not already conversant with. As for Bob Balaban, he sagely bats out some almanac stats for us on the CG flood, explosion, lightning strikes, and falls off high rooftops that no one died during along with how big it made the corn, which I guess they grew in New England that year. Because what's romantic whimsy without meteorological minutia? Speaking of which, we also learn tmi at the end that whenever Sam paints Susie, he's still ruminating about the topography of the coastline where they partied and got caught, which they wound up calling Moonrise Kingdom, even though there's no moon in the movie, and they got overthrown on day two. The end. <laughs> Thank you, Kelly Warren. Tried. It's fucking Wes Anderson. What are you going to do? No, I know. You you handled yourself admirably considering what you had to work with. Well done. Uh, Dingus, you are our uh, Wes Anderson archivist. And apologist. And the only one who really goes to bat for Rushmore, uh, at least as, as vociferously as you do. Where would you fit Moonrise Kingdom into your... Wes Anderson experience at this point in time, dingus. More stupid math to come. <laughs> uh, I would nestle it. I wouldn't fit it. I would nestle it. Aw. Uh, right uh, between Darjeeling Limited and the Fantastic Mr. Fox. I don't really know what to do with that. I guess yeah, I, was I expecting... thought Darjeeling was high end and. and... Well, I was expecting Dingus to relate it to Rushmore, which is what I want to do briefly. So I, I've, uh, like, I, I love all Wes Anderson, pretty much. Uh, I'm not as high on Fantastic Mr. Fox as Dingus was, uh, because I really like looking at, at actors more than puppets, and that, that's fine. Um, but one of my problems with Rushmore was that coming after Bottle Rocket, but before the world of Royal Tenenbaums, I wasn't quite clear where Rushmore was set. You know, are we in Max's imagination? Is this the real world? Is it some amalgam of the real world? Uh, 
And I kind of feel like after having seen Moonrise Kingdom, I can sort of understand Rushmore better. And I, I sort of feel like Rushmore was set in Wes Anderson's head. Because that's yeah. like... And, and that's where Moonrise Kingdom is clearly set. Like, he creates his own little universe there. And I kind of feel like, oh, that's probably how I should have appreciated Rushmore. And I loved many things about Rushmore. I feel it's, it's, you know, it's a sophomore effort, literally, but it's also erratic in certain ways. And I felt Moonrise Kingdom wasn't. Like, Moonrise Kingdom had that tone much more consistent throughout. Uh, and it was partly because it's so much about the world of children. Um, that, you know, I just, I watched this and was like, oh, this is why Dingus loves Rushmore so much. Um, so that's why I wanted to ask you. So Kelly Rushmore, wanted to, yeah, yep, go ahead. Rushmore had better Bill Murray. This was maybe the, the weakest. Here is something that I really loved about Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, as much as I love Bill Murray and as much as I love Wes Anderson, I was really happy to see him, to, to not see any of, the, any of his usual actors front and center. Oh, God, yeah. these two kids were so amazing, and it helped transport me to this idea of like an, another world because I wasn't watching. Oh, there's Jason Schwartzman, there's Owen Wilson, oh, there's Luke Wilson. Okay, now here comes Bill Murray parts. Like I didn't feel Bill Murray was there, but he wasn't that prominent. Um, and, and Jason Schwartzman kind of had the the eleventh hour appearance, but I didn't feel like this was a movie featuring his usual actors, and I loved that about it so much. Um, I yeah. kind of liked seeing Bill Murray just kind of mope around in the background. That was awesome. Uh, and very Royal Tenenbaums in a way. Uh, so that was one of the things I really appreciated about Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, so, Dingus, when you... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, normally kids ruin movies. But towards the end, I thought it was sort of dragging a little because there were too many adults on screen. Like, I want more of the kids. Like, it's like Full Metal Jacket. It's like the first half's awesome. It's like I have to escape <laughs> again. They get caught again. It's not as epic. Only Kelly Wand would relate Full Metal Jacket and Moonrise Kingdom. <laughs> so, Dingus, explain a bit, and Kelly Wand, I want, to, I want to hear more from you in a second, but explain a bit what you mean when you nestle Moonrise Kingdom, where you nestle it, between uh, Darjeeling Limited and Fantastic Mr. Fox. What, what? That, that's a bit glib. I thought you were just asking me to put it uh, in the space of where, we, where you would put it as far as what you love, as far as rating it. Um, but, uh, but you're absolutely right. It is definitely in that same headspace because for me, this movie is about sort of, or what I love about it is my fantasy about getting a girlfriend. <laughs> and I think it's you're Wait, married. Is, so. Yeah. Is this <laughs> your current fantasy? <laughs> I have to no, see. I mean, as a, as a kid, you know, when, when you're a kid, I don't know anybody else had this experience or what, but I just remember being 12 or 10 and just thinking about the girls I really liked at that time and and how they were going to become my girlfriend or how I was just going to be with them and that, not having any idea what that meant. And this movie just really spoke to that in the same way that, that Rushmore uh, speaks to me just about childhood fantasies, but in a different, at a different age. So I, I like what Tom is saying, but I'm talking just about, I, I really love Moonrise Kingdom, but I think um, uh, the reason I say Darjeeling limited and fantastic Mr. Fox is that I'm talking about where, I'm just a total Wes Anderson fanboy, so I'm just stacking it as far as where I would rate them. Well, it also, uh, it, it's very much about, and this is, I think, hard for a movie to do well. And I continually see movies that make me loathe even more Super 8 
And this is one of them, because it's hard to do a movie about what it's like to be a child and see the world through the eyes of a child. And Moonrise Kingdom is so much about how children perceive love. And I certainly, you know, everybody, I, I would think everybody can relate to that. So, Dingus, when you talk about it's about you and your first girlfriend, I completely understand. And it's something that I, I, I think, again, Rushmore sort of attempted um, but this is a sort of a much more pure and innocent and consistent portrayal of that. This is how children feel when they feel that they're in love and they discover this wonderful new weird thing that's, that's part of the adult world without discovering the, the part of the adult life that sullies it. Um, there's just this just amazing purity and innocence to Moonrise Kingdom. Well, I can't, that's, yeah, that's really a really great way to put it. I think Rushmore... Um, speaks to me more as an adult, but uh, Moonrise Kingdom taps into, really taps directly into uh, the fantasies I had as that that age, mm-hmm. and it just it just opened my eyes uh, inside my head. I don't know how to I don't know how to describe that, but it just all of a sudden it made me think, oh my gosh, that's what I was thinking. I mean, I didn't have this particular fantasy but i just remember just living my life in fantasies at that age i mean i wasn't getting any girlfriends then of course not but i would just remember having so many fantasies about being a hero and 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 trying to be a hero then and rushmore uh instead speaks to me more as an adult and rushmore is very tied up with the adult world in a way that moonrise kingdom isn't and the trickiness of a child trying to enter the adult world i mean moonrise kingdom it's his own kingdom it's its own little place and rushmore you know, he's in love with Olivia Williams, and it can never work. And there's that harsh reality in Rushmore that kind of doesn't really exist here. Uh, in a way, when it does exist, it's like a cartoon villain almost. Um, you know, social services, <laughs> for instance. Right. Kelly wanted to get in here. All right, so uh, we both I have responses them. to both of you. Yes. The Tom one's shorter, so I just want to say, Super 8 came out as a summer movie. And the thing I love about Moonrise Kim is it's a summer movie. It's like it's coming out for kids. Ah, Yes. It's coming out right before Prometheus. And it's annoying that it's only playing in one theater. Because it should be playing in all of them. And then Black <laughs> should be only playing at the bottom of the ocean. Not that I've seen it. <laughs> so every screen that is currently showing Men in Black should instead show Moonrise Kingdom. Yes, and Moonrise Kingdom, black. every screen that's now showing that, all you know, seven or eight around the country, instead Men in Black should be relegated only to those screens. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm with you, Kelly Wand. <sighs> It's the you, only movie that's been sold out since I got here that I had to like re-see because people wanted to see it. So there's more demand for it than... Well. Well, what? <laughs> I should If I want to see something, it should be easy. It sh- I shouldn't have to drive... Not that I have a car. All right. This isn't about me whining. Yes, it is. <laughs> but I was just going to say, in response to Dingus, when I was 11, I had a summer camp romance with this red-headed little girl named Heather Mackleby. <laughs> All right. All right, Charlie Brown. <laughs> So on the last day, I gave her my windbreaker, and that's the one that had her address in it. So then I never saw her again. Nice. Yeah, I'm smooth. <laughs> I go, I see, I'll see it. I'll get it back when I see you next. So I had a really good line for it, and then I never saw her again. So maybe she thought I was dumping her because it was in the pocket, but I'm just an idiot. And then in romance movies, there's always this inevitable separation, mm-hmm. but then there's always a reunion at the end. Mm-hmm. But in RL, these reunions never happen. And that's my takeaway for that story. Now, you didn't, uh, Kelly Wan, do you normally object to redemption in movies? And how did you feel about how Moonrise Kingdom turned out and how it did, 
have this very clear sort of innocence and purity, and uh, it, it was it's a happy, ultimately very very positive movie. Who got and redeemed he, from like they were fine before? They didn't need redemption. They were redeemed before the movie started. What? Who are you talking about? I just it had a happy. Okay, here's what I'm talking about. I I love you. I love you, Kelly One, but you don't know what you're talking. Beautiful. Uh, so I, I tonight rewatched Darjeeling Limited. You know, I've had the, the Blu-ray, the Criterion Blu-ray here for a while. I've been meaning to rewatch it. Uh, Darjeeling Limited, and I was dreading this throughout Moonrise Kingdom. I did not know if Moonrise Kingdom was ever going to have a look at these assholes, I couldn't save mine. Uh, moment like Darjeeling Limited had. It wasn't until Sam was struck by lightning and there was that beautiful shower of nickels that I was like, okay, I think they're going to be safe. I think it's going to be all right. Like when they kill Snoopy, I, I didn't know if, if Wes Anderson was going to make this go dark or was going to do anything terrible. Like uh, that's such a jarring, important, powerful moment in Darjeeling Limited. And I didn't know if that was going to be part of Wes Anderson's vocabulary going forward, that kind of moment, that kind of twist. And uh, so I was, I was kind of, I was delighted throughout Moonrise Kingdom, but I was a little guarded for something like that happening, something darker. And it wasn't until he could survive a lightning strike that I really felt at ease uh, in the movie. Uh-huh. Uh, so you were okay with that, Kelly Wand? You were okay with? I it. thought it was a shark jump at the moment, but then when they kissed and it became like a callback, I go, oh, that's cool. Yeah, the it's electricity. Thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm in Taylor Kitsch. <laughs> because his love made him super powered. So I'll go, all right, I'll accept that. Like the that Matrix. probably happens all the time. Right. The Matrix makes you super powered, and that's why <laughs> he's so in love with someone that he didn't meet the Matrix. Oh, yeah, they meet the party. God, what an epic romance it was. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, for, all, for all its sort of innocence and purity and happiness and, and redemption, I mean, I did feel that there was a kind of a... A grave, not grave, but there, there was some gravity to the message. And one of my, one of the moments that really struck me in Moonrise Kingdom was the conversation between Francis McDormand and Bill Murray when they're in bed at night. Uh. And and God, this just I, I, this line just slayed me when uh, she says to him, "You know, we're all they've got." And I remember listening to that conversation unfold and being kind of aware, oh, this is, you know, Wes Anderson writing the adult roles. You know, we've, we've gotten great precocious stuff with the kids, and now here's an adult conversation. Let's hear where it goes. And when she says to him, we're all they've got, and he says, it's not enough. Mm. God, that was just so... I mean, I think that, that was such a bummer, and that, that was kind of the... Um, in a way, I think the message of the movie was adults saving children from ruin. Uh, you, you know, the, the, the iconic image for me is that ruined steeple, you know, the destruction of religion by God himself, and the children have plummeted from it, and it takes one man who, who has, a you know, one sad, older, broken-hearted man to decide to save them. Uh, I just love, you know, it's kind of a silhouette, that image, and it was obviously like cartoon characters. It could have been one of the drawings on a book cover, for instance. I just love that image, and this is, you know... It, it takes adults to save children from ruin. Uh, See, I thought the adults were getting in the way till Bruce Willis. Well, you know, where did, yeah, where, like, uh, there, there is this kind of thing, like, the adults are portrayed as ineffectual and kind of clownish and silly, and the kids are all preternaturally wise, but I think that's because the movie is through kids' eyes. Like, that's how kids see adults. That's how kids mm-hmm. see the world, I, I think. Um well, they don't see like the Bill Murray scene you're talking about, right? 
Right, exactly. And that's one reason that I thought that was such a poignant scene, too, is because it wasn't this kind of style. They weren't goofballs. He wasn't throwing a shoe, you know, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't like Edward Norton doing the spot check on somebody on a Cub Scouts uniform. Uh, it was two people in bed fretting about their children. And are they enough to save their children from ruin? Uh, and the doubt and insecurity about that is very poignant stuff. Um, Let's see. I'd be a terrible father. I'd tell my kids to fall in love and run away from the cops. <laughs> uh, I like chicks who throw down for their man, like Amy Adams in The Fighter. I have not seen that, but uh, is there a similar fight scene in The Fighter? Is anyone stabbed with scissors? Mm, I find murderous rage in women very attractive. <laughs> Does a dog die in The Fighter? Spoiler! Don't... <laughs> so wait, not this... you, not you, and not you. <laughs> Wait, who was that? Heath Ledger? That was Dingus's impression of Mark Wahlberg oh. in, in The Fighter. Uh, For me, the, the poignant adult moment is when Bruce Willis is, is having that scene with Frances McDormand, and she says, I have to be better for everyone, and he says, everyone except me. And, and he's going through that process of... And this isn't something I think that kids would understand, but they would is that uh, I have to do something that has nothing to do with me and it will eventually benefit me, but it's not going to help me. I don't know. It was just this beautiful moment where he says not everyone, but me. And then he ends up making the same kind of choice too, by the way, at the exactly. end. Yeah. Exactly. Hmm. Uh, okay. I want to say something a little provocative and I fully expect you guys to jump on me. Uh, take me to task for this. I kind of thought Bruce Willis was a weak point. Like, I liked him, but I was so aware that he was Bruce Willis. And, like, I loved Adrian Brody and Darjeeling Limited, but I'm not sure that I was... What? I was okay that's, with Bruce you're Willis. You're going to go that. That's such a... All right. But, no, I was okay with him. I just... I think this I would have... I would have rather recast... If I was Wes Anderson, I think I would have recast that part. Bruce Willis was fine, but... I Why are just... you going to Adrian Brody, though? Like, that's the... That's the... Oh, because Adrian Brody is a very non-Wes Anderson actor, and so he is in Darjeeling Limited working with uh, Owen Wilson fight. and Jason Schwartzman, who are very definitely Wes Anderson actors, and I thought he fit. He was perfect. So here we have these two awesome, awesome kids, uh, you know, Bill Murray and Francis McDormand, fine, whatever, uh, and then Bruce Willis. Like, Bruce Willis... And, oh, and Edward Norton, by golly, playing against type. Man, I loved him in this. But but Bruce Willis, I I could have, I don't know about done without him, but I don't know. I would have maybe recast that role. Am I being too harsh? Somebody go to bat for Bruce Willis here. Dingus, you're a big Bruce Willis apologist. Am I am I being too harsh? Yeah, I think so. I I had a hard a harder time with uh, Edward Norton at the beginning um, mm-hmm. when he first starts marching in in that in that long. Uh, Wes Anderson sidetracking shot. I was just mm-hmm. like, what is he doing? I didn't know what he was doing. But, but by the time, actually, by the time the two of them are together in that, um, in that scene where they're talking to social services. Yes. Yes. And, <laughs> and when they get together to, it was the girl. Uh, that's when <laughs> it just, the two of them coalesced for me. And then when Bruce Willis has the scene, um, I don't know if that's if the, I, I'm not sure where this falls in the timeline of the movie, but where uh, Bruce Willis has the scene with Sam, uh, where he gives him the beer a couple yep. of times. I just I 
totally loved what Bruce Willis was doing in this. And 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 at that moment, I just saw beyond him and and saw beyond Edward Norton. So I I really really liked Bruce Willis in this. It didn't remind you of Bruce Willis in like Die Hard Four. What? <laughs> Which one is that? <laughs> oh, the PG I, I can't. I don't know. Can you give the, a recasting? Uh huh. Billy Bob Thornton. Uh, what? No. Okay. Yeah, that's, actually, wait, was, wait, that's actually good. I, take I was more distracted by Harvey Keitel than anyone else. Yeah, well, yeah. you know, I was too dingus, but it kind of, I didn't mind. Like, it, it was a clown part, and so I was okay with that. But yeah, Harvey Keitel and his mustache. <laughs> that was, <laughs> That's what it was like in the 1860s, though. Uh, sure. Uh, so, uh, by yeah. the way, I think you're retarded, Tom. I think. Okay, thank you. I, I, I just needed a, a sanity check. You know, if, that, if that's a little crazy of me to say that, fair enough. You bring a lot of preconceptions, though, I've noticed. Well, I feel that there are certain actors that I, you know, when I watch them, I'm watching the actor and not so much the character. And Bruce Willis has very rarely been able to leave himself and become a character for me. And so I was just very aware that I was watching Bruce Willis. And even though he was fine and I loved the scene with him pouring beer for Sam, um, I just would have rather seen an actor who could leave himself. Maybe I, I don't know. You know what? You're right. It's me. It's me being harsh. Well, I just... you see that you obsess on that, and then I just obsess about the writing, and then Dingus is obsessing about the weather, like an education. Though. <laughs> like Dingus is the wild really? card. <laughs> no, no, because that was I was I found that fascinating because me and Tom have never have had the day. <laughs> I just feel Bruce Willis's sadness and dumb. He's not dumb as they say, but I feel his sadness here. And I think he just does such a great job driving that sad old car and meeting with her, which I totally expect to happen. Um, I really, I just really liked him. I don't know. I, I, I shouldn't because, because of, I'm kind of geared not to like him at this point because of those stupid, uh, um, G.I. Joe, Oh, no, the G.I. Joe. Yeah. Oh, Joe previews where he's in the back of that El Camino or whatever. Um, and Red, you know, we had to sit through Red for Pete's sake. That's not his fault. No, but he does a certain he does a certain smirking thing, and he does it in. Uh, and I'm glad you brought out Cop Out because, uh, and I hadn't thought about this until now because there's there's the, the complaints about the director of having to deal with him as such a diva, and his smirking really should annoy me but in this i just get his sadness okay wait who called him a diva kevin smith i'm guessing oh jesus yeah. wow. <laughs> pot kettle black <laughs> uh well okay let's then talk about the real revelations here good lord jared gilman and kara hayward yeah holy cats god yeah. where, how does wes anderson do this first of all where does he find them how does he work so well with them how do they get the material so well my God, what uncanny appreciation these kids must... I, it was just, what, what a joy watching both of them, uh, just without exception. And I loved how Moonrise Kingdom unpacks its characters, how first we meet Kara, or, or Susie, uh, th- in the context of the home. Like I love seeing that house, not being sure who's going to be the lead character, who's going to bubble out of this tableau, who's going to emerge as, a, as the personality we're going to follow... Uh, and I love how we are introduced to Sam through other characters talking about him and his absence. 
Um, God, I just loved how it unpacked these characters and the actors playing these characters were just such a revelation to me. I love seeing child actors who are just this good and, and just this in tune with material. Yeah, and it's challenging material, too. Yeah. They have to do, uh, have to do a lot of hurdles in this. They really do, yeah. Yeah. And then they, he keeps, Wes Anderson keeps finding these kids, too. Like, 10 years will pass, so that it's like a new generation of them. Jason Schwartzman, you know, remember seeing Jason Schwartzman in Rushmore. It's every bit as as as, as thrilling as seeing him in this, who's this kid in Rushmore? I mean, he's related to Francis Ford Coppola, so that's kind of more understandable. But these kids, as far as I know, Dingus, do you know this? Are they related to anyone famous? No, he just found them. <laughs> so he really did find them in casting calls, and, and it's one of those situations where, okay, now we've got it. It, it really was. I mean, I think uh, Kara had done maybe some community theater or something. I mean, it really, it really was a matter of we found these kids and and now let's just get them to understand the rhythm of my dialogue. Huh. And working with each other and the other actors. I mean. Yeah. God, they were just so, they were so just present and aware, and you could see them listening to other characters when they talked. I mean, that's such a crucial thing in, in good actors. Like, how are they are they listening when somebody's talking to them? Are they in the moment? And and these kids were just so good. Oh. It was and like I, lo- I love how he plays with that fact during the Jason Schwartzman the, the yeah. Jason Schwartzman scene of uh, they're not listening. <laughs> And and he's totally playing with the fact that these are kids and they don't listen and they're just gonna just answer what they're gonna answer. Um, I I really loved them. I mean, I especially love her. I think she's fantastic. No kidding. I mean, he was good, but he was. Uh, I don't, I'm sure there's a sports metaphor here. It's like where you're playing someone a bracket above you. I don't know what that right. metaphor is. But I loved I loved Jared Gilman and he was great, but man, she was just phenomenal. Uh man, she just elevated every scene she was in. Just so expressive and and those freaking eyes, amazing. Uh, She's like watching for me I, I I just like she made me think of Nicole Kidman in something yeah. like Margot at the wedding. Is that the name of the thing? Is you're not qualified to. You're. I. I have struggled long and hard to get you to appreciate that movie. You're not qualified to bring that up now. But just the way her her face looks and her mouth looks and the way she listens and and reacts to things, I thought she was phenomenal. Yeah. Um. He's more awkward, but it it's kind of an awkward thing, and I love that Wes Anderson cast him. Um. But he's not. You're right. He. Her line readings were like pitch perfect. Punching above his weight class. Thank you, Dinkus. Ah, rats, I should have thought of that one. Well, it is. I tried. Uh, But it fits because of the classic thing about, you know, girls mature faster than boys. And uh, and she was just such. There was this. I mean, they're both, of, of course, supposed to be these troubled kids. But she made it so convincing when we flash forward and, and find out that she's the one that had done most of the damage in the flip-out scene. I was like, yeah, I could see that. There's there's some definite intensity to this young girl. I could see her taking scissors to someone. Uh, Which, you know, the, the thing is, I don't know if you would call this a, a flaw with the movie, because he is writing about his own fantasies, I would think. I mean, that I'm kind of, again, layering my own childhood fantasies on this, and he's a dude 
thinking about his uh, own yes. girlfriends or whatever. But um, but as she says, she usually prefers female heroines, but she doesn't. It doesn't have to be that. <laughs> I I almost kind of wish she had been the female. The I mean, she is the the heroine, but I I I, I kind of wish that that the movie had been driven by her instead of by him because of the strength of her. Uh, but it doesn't have to be. It's just I, I kind of wonder where it could have gone. Well, did you know when they wrote it? I mean, did you feel? Did you not feel that they were kind of co-drivers though, Dingus? Like, did you feel that he had a sort of a more proactive role? Well, I think that the the thrust of the uh, the heroism of the story is coming from those who want to rescue him, and it's about. You know, social services and his and the khaki troop. It's all about him. It's that's where it's all driving, and then her family is a part of that. Okay, but I, I do find. I mean, for me, uh, I hear what you're saying, but for me, the movie opens with scenes of a, of a young woman seeking something. And it's right. really, for so long, the movie is about, oh, here's this, this mysterious, compelling young character, and she's looking for something. She's constantly looking for something. You know, the metaphor of her with the binoculars searching for things. And, and she even has some great line about how she, she sees things through the binoculars. And it's only that he gradually is introduced into the movie. But I did kind of, one of the things I really appreciated about it is that she wasn't just some dude's power fantasy character. Uh, has, how the movie really did let her share the driver's seat some. Uh, uh, substantially. So I get what you're saying, but I, I would kind of disagree, and I, I did appreciate how they did kind of have co-equal impetus. You know, she wasn't just standing by uh, meekly. Uh, and, and there was a lot of great character work about her and her family and discovering that book. And her reaction, Dingus, oh my god, I loved her uh, like when she's unpacking the books. What is it he says to her? Like he makes some tactical error at some point. In their early conversation, and I just love that we that she's not just some meek girl who's going to stand by and, and be the sidekick. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Psychology book. Uh, Which I right, right. Had, it seemed out of character for him. Even. Well, he's just sort of a clumsy little boy. Uh, yeah, but he's I, an orphan. He's probably like. Well, I guess. It makes more sense. <laughs> uh, but the, when the dialogue uh, for that fight between the kids, that kind of reminded me of the dialogue in a play that. Rushmore would have written. You know what? Yeah, I, a lot of times it did look like those <laughs> those theatrical performances. I know the character's name wasn't Rushmore, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, the whole thing, really. I mean, I, I get the sense, and I don't really know this genre very well. Uh, you know, my touchstone for these kind of like young fugitives escaping. Uh, is like Badlands, a Terrence Malick movie. Yeah. But if I'm not mistaken, there's a whole like like French movies. There's one called Restless, I think, or Breathless, or one of them's an American remake. But but isn't there like French fugitives on the lamb? Isn't this movie very much a nod to that kind of genre? I think it's like they the Rushmore, and... right? And this is like the Rushmore production version of that kind of French movie. I think. Hmm. I have nothing to say to that. <laughs> we don't know our French cinema very well. Why, why would that have been written by uh, Max Fisher instead of Margot? Kelly went, who's Margot? Margot Tenenbaum. She oh, oh Margot. <laughs> Damn it. You didn't say her last name, and because she was adopted, I didn't think... Plus, you uh, said Margot in the wedding earlier. Sorry, yeah. I, should have, I should have said her middle. <laughs> Worst conversation ever. <laughs> 
Uh, how about those visuals too? So uh, the 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 cinematographer who normally works with Wes Anderson is Robert Yeoman. Uh, man, I just I, I are we sick yet of his like tableau style? Anyone anyone gonna complain about that? We don't see it that often. It's true. One movie every couple of years. Uh, it was it looked it reminded me of Tannenbaum's kind of in a good way. So Tannenbaum's, yeah. Same kind of house, same kind of, and I thought, oh, it's it's Margot as a girl. I thought it was a prequel for a little bit because it was like three three boys and one girl. Wasn't that what Tannenbaum's was? Well, as we know, she was wasn't she raised by Amish folks? Which one? Margot Tannenbaum. Oh. She we was. have her backstory. Yeah, yeah. It's where she lost her finger, where it got chopped off by Andrew Wilson, one of the the Wilson <laughs> brothers. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's in the movie. Uh, this did so remind me of Royal Tenenbaums, just in terms of the, the tone and, and spirit. Uh, and so here we go. This is what I was kind of pretending at earlier. I, I think Artifice. I think this might be my favorite Wes Anderson movie. Whoa! It used to be Tenenbaums, and that's the thing is when I watch Royal Tenenbaums, I get such a high off of that movie. I get such this pleasant buzz watching that movie. And, and like Bruce Willis. No, no, it's just I, I would have recast that. You know, I would have seen if Billy Bob Thornton was available, maybe. Uh, no, Bruce really, was fine. He was fine. I'm just so aware when I watch Bruce Willis that I'm watching Bruce Willis. Uh, but in Tannenbaum's, you wouldn't recast anyone. So it's no, because like, Gene Hackman is so perfect. That's another thing. Like Adrian Brody coming into Darjeeling Limited, Gene Hackman coming into Royal Tenenbaums. It totally works. You know what? You're right. It's a, it's unfair that I brought up Bruce Willis. I apologize. If Mr. Willis is listening, I apologize. So there you go. But but I, not, I I don't think it's unfair at all. I think it's a totally legitimate thing to bring up, and I'm glad you did. But you know what? I'm so aware, too, that I'm watching Gene Hackman when I watch Royal Tenenbaums. But Gene Hackman really does strike me as the patriarch of this privileged New York family. Like I can I can see that. I watch Bruce Hillis, Bruce Willis as a sad little lighthouse cop on a on a tiny island. And that's that's not how I see Bruce Willis. You know, he's not quite selling that character as well as Hackman sells the paterfamilias of the Tenenbaum family. Maybe it's, but that maybe that's what a lighthouse cop's like who loves Bruce Willis movies. Oh right, it's a character who like patterned himself after Bruce, kind of like uh, Julia Roberts in that Ocean's Thirteen movie, or the Roger Moore character in Cannibal Run. <laughs> God. <laughs> Second. I think the the better, uh, well, not better, but um, the thing I would expect more to stick out would be Ben Stiller, and he doesn't. Oh, yeah, yeah, because that's another example, Dingus. Mm-hmm. He's so good in that. Like, yeah, you know, that's the Ben Stiller that, that I can watch and eventually realize, oh, he's going to do uh, Greenberg in, in several years. Right. Uh, yeah, I can definitely see that. Um, and this is not the Bruce Willis from, say, 12 Monkeys, for instance, uh, where he's great in that, and I, I don't feel like he's Bruce Willis. Uh, you know what? I, I I don't. Let's not hard. I, I liked him in this a lot. He was great. I just Greenberg's I not the Ben Stiller from <laughs> from what? I don't remember <laughs> from Zoolander. It's when we played a gangster. Uncle Von Tom movie. Finish your thought. Don't listen to Kelly Wan. What's wrong with you? Well, I, I want so uh, Dingus. You are our, uh, our musical commentator. <laughs> What, how's the, how is the music? Many in this titles movie? being dispensed. <laughs> That's right. Oh well, I'm just a sucker for music. Um, I mean, it, it has the normal uh, Mark Mothersbaugh music. And what I, I sort of talked to Tom a little bit about was that the music supervisor is a guy named Randall Poster, and um, 
I, I just love the way, and this guy has worked with Wes Anderson on every movie save Bottle Rocket. Right. Um, and I just, I until I got to hear this guy talk about it, I really hadn't considered uh, how difficult or how uh, challenging the job of clearing the music was and shelving away music for future films and for specific scenes would be if you're going to do uh, matching specific songs with moments in, in movies and watching I, I mean, one of the great things about getting to watch this movie this week and getting to watch it early um, was getting to watch Fantastic Mr. Fox and Royal Tenenbaums and Rushmore again and seeing the way uh, Wes Anderson and this guy Randall Poster use music throughout the movies. And they're so good at matching music for tone. And I just love the way they, they do that in this movie as well. So the music here was very, I, I guess the two notable names throughout the, the soundtrack are uh, is Benjamin Britten and Hank Williams. Yeah. Which is a really odd combination when you, when you after the fact, think about it. But listening during the movie didn't seem odd at all. Like, like the, the Benjamin Britten stuff was uh, Susie's sort of motif, because that's, you know, the family she came from with two lawyers as parents. And then there was the Hank Williams stuff, which is these 1960s Cub Scouts and the Island Cop and the Fisherman and the Ferry Operator. Uh, like, I, I kind of like how they were both, you, you know, these two different cultures almost t- together on this little fantasy island. Uh, and God, I loved how they took apart the Benjamin Britten stuff at the beginning and then later did that with, uh, I presume, an original piece composed by Alexander Desplat for the movie. Is that right, Dingus? At the end, you mean? Yeah. Like was Over that? A, yeah, yeah. Was that an original piece written for the movie? I think so, but I don't really remember. Okay. I mean the the Benjamin Britten thing is is um, is that uh, oh God, what's the name of it? That you know orchestra for a young person it's it's basically teaching us or teaching it's teaching a, a kid or teaching a child how a symphony works or how right. um and and i think at the end it's that sort of the same breakdown but just with uh, jared gilman doing the voiceover isn't it yeah but isn't he doing it with a piece of music that alexander Desplat composed for moonrise kingdom uh, it might very well be i don't know. okay but anyway I, was- I, I loved the music go ahead sorry I was just, I was more focused on, and this is particular to me, uh, the, the Hank Williams stuff and how well it worked here and how beautifully it worked as opposed to a movie I saw last week, which was Men in Black. Um, and it's, they just make jokes about cowboy music and it's just a joke about, um, Tommy Lee Jones's character. And so you hear a couple of cowboy songs and it's just really a throwaway joke. And for for some reason, getting to hear those Hank Williams songs and uh, really hear them in relation to character, it just made. Again, it's kind of unfair because Men in Black is just a goofy throwaway movie. <laughs> um, but but here, I really love the fact that that Wes Anderson and Rena Poster really work together to think uh, we're going to save this song for a specific moment, and and then we're going to try to use a bunch of songs for this particular character. Uh, I really love the way those Hank Williams songs work in this movie. Yeah. yeah. Kelly Wan, do you have the soundtrack yet? 
Hank Williams is the one from Smoking the Bandit, the short one. One, two, three, not only you and me, got 180 degrees, uh. and I'm caught in between. Counting. One, two, three, Peter Pan, Were you thinking of Paul Lynn? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so I was thinking of. Oh, what? Uh, let's do a three by three. So, so I, I, I think I would. Say there was really no way we were gonna pull out of that without. Without what? No. Without a Cannonball Run reference. Yep. <laughs> this was pulling out. Thank God we got it. Wait. Uh, no one else is with me though. What? New, fa- what? a new favorite Wes Anderson, or you just really liked it? Too early to say. I do need to see it at least one more time. I feel like I can't wait to get back in mm-hmm. to see. If I really, I really wanted to go see it again. Because uh, we got to see it early in the week, but I couldn't. I think Darjeeling Limited is my favorite. Well, so that's the thing, Kelly Wan, is I feel I still feel Darjeeling Limited is his best movie, but I don't know that it's my favorite. I mean, there's a certain sophistication. Uh, I'll go with Genesequan. But no, there's a certain sort of maturity to Darjeeling Limited and, and a lack of whimsy that I really respond to, and I I just feel like it's just a strong, powerful message, and it's. Uh, as far as movies go, it's I would say it's Britney one of his Spears best. His message is powerful music. It's like the difference between Britney Spears and Keisha, for instance. You see? Is that the one from Battleship? <laughs> How dare you? How dare you do that to Rihanna? Right. All right. What is this week's 3x3? Three three cal- or no, Dingus, this is your 3x3. Three three. What do you got for us this week? Uh, I got something pretty simple. It's just your favorite courtroom scenes. What's off the table? Hmm. Oh, when Dingus said what the topic was, I wrote courtroom orders for some reason. (laughs) My number three is sustained. (laughs) Uh, All right, so I'm introducing next week's three by three, so I'll start us off. Uh, I don't like courtroom scenes. Why? Yeah. Because the law is just this this clumsy, formalized thing, and you normally have to take liberties with it to make it interesting for a movie. I have been in my life in a courtroom one and a half times. Both times were, <laughs> were immensely frustrating experiences. Wait a minute. Yeah? What was the half? You were, dra- were you half inside the courtroom? <laughs> people no, were trying was- to drag, oh, I'm going to be heard. It was in utero. So it was it was an arbitration hearing for a, a video game company where I was like the expert witness, and it wasn't literally a courtroom, but it was in this like conference room with a judge, and I expected it was going to be a courtroom, and was a little disappointed that it actually wasn't. But it's, it's your bar is high on everything: courtrooms, Bruce Willis, <laughs> now Harvard Divinity. I didn't say your favorite deposition scenes, Tom. What are you talking about? What do you do? Well, uh, it's a it's a court it's a room in a courthouse. Is it the no. architecture you're bored by, or the the robes of the judge, or the gavel, or the smell? Or no. The- so the law is its own complicated game that the average person is not privy to. You have to go to a whole school to know the rules of this game. So to make it cinematic or dramatic somehow, you've got to like water it down or just make it stupid or, or just I, I, I don't like feel everything. that it, we, what we, no you can do good say, you don't think they dumb down police work in the no, movies no that's realistic never All right. no. <laughs> Tango and Cash actually they make recruits watch Tango and Cash right and um, Dog yeah. Day After 
21 Jump Street. Well, police, yeah, exactly, 21 Jump Street. See, police uh, stuff is is inherently more interesting than legal stuff. It's more cinematic. Uh, If you were to watch actual legal stuff, I I think it would just be boring and you would fall asleep and have no idea what's going on. Uh, So who here has been on jury? I've never been on jury duty is another thing. Who's been on jury duty here? I've never made it to the paneling. Like, I never get called. Yeah, that's never going to happen to any of us. Dingus, did you ever get on a jury? Oh, yeah. Oh. Look how he says it all proud. <laughs> I don't think you're supposed to be proud of that, Dingus. Yeah. Uh, Who'd you I send am, to the chair? It, it's one of the things I'm most proud of in my life, actually. Were you on the Michael Jackson trial? Because that's what I uh, I'm going to say. Um, can I say no? He might be under uh, NDA for talk about it. No, I was on a, I was on a, uh, my first, my very first time doing jury duty out here in Los Angeles. I got, uh, onto a jury of the, mur- of a murder. And it was. Kelly <laughs> Wan, why are you laughing at that? It was hilarious. It. it was but such, such it was a funny murder. murder. Right. <laughs> See, Tom doesn't get that. That's why he's bored by jury movies. He doesn't know how much comedy there is. <laughs> OJ Simpson trial was hilarious. So Tom's. Take that. <laughs> well, I, I hadn't done the jury thing, so I hadn't seen the whole thing. Once was the arbitration hearing, and the other time I testified against this guy who I had caught robbing my friend's car. Like, what? Oh, was it Ken Osborne? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know about this, right? I mean, I don't. Uh, we should, should we out him? Uh, it was no. Let's not. <laughs> yeah, so you know that story. Anyway, I caught the guy, and then they had that we had to testify against. Like I had to testify against him, and another police officer testified, and I later found out that the guy was acquitted because the jury didn't like that all the witnesses were white, that it was like some weird racial angle, which I just found immensely frustrating. Uh, and then the I, the arbitration hearing in front of the judge and the that like all of that, I was so lost during that. I didn't know if I was helping anyone's cause or not. Remember I, when the audience uh, booed you for asking the woman to keep her child quiet during the movie? I, I'm convinced that they booed. They, it wasn't booing. It was white. cheering. It was cheering. Yeah. Oh. They cheered. Her. I said, oh, we don't know that, Kaliwan. We don't know. I said, please take the baby outside of the theater. Right. And then the woman said something like, shut up, fool. And then the audience cheered. The you jury, think they were cheering for you? We don't know. know. We don't know if they were That's cheering for me. It was in Berkeley, California. We don't know what That's those true. people are That's thinking. That's a good point, Tom. Up there. Berkeley that. is a weird place. Um, yeah. Wait, was also, didn't you say that later on in the movie it was like a mystery and you're like, Someone went, wait, so the Mrs. Peacock didn't do it? And you're like, no, because she was over there and the witness was blind or something. Like, you, you wound up bond, bonding with the booers. I don't know what story that's from, Kelly Wan. All right, forget I don't know what you are. Yeah, I'm uh, So anyway, the point being, I'm not into whole courtroom things. Dingus has been on a jury, so maybe he can mention that or relate it to some of his picks later. But for me, I find courtrooms dull, frustrating, inscrutable, Anytime a movie goes into a courtroom, I think it's having to take liberties, and I just just get us out of there. So that said, here are some courtroom scenes, my three, that I was kind of okay with. Most of them I'm not okay with. Now, the first one, this is an easy one. It's a no-brainer. I even feel really cheap for mentioning it. But before Al Pacino is just a great big old goofball, that famous outbreak at the end of Injustice for All, I remember, hey, this is exciting. You know, it, look at this Al Pacino guy. He's cool. I don't remember where it fit into, like, like was it pre? It was right around Dog Day afternoon. Look at right? this Al Pacino guy. <laughs> He's cool. In 1980. Hey, I haven't heard of him. But he had he, he hadn't been yelling that stuff for 30 years. Right. It was like his first try, yelling. 
Yeah, exactly. So I could afford him that. That's okay. I could appreciate it. Uh, and I, I kind of liked and just. And Justice for All, like it had, I think Jeffrey Tambor is even in it. I don't remember a lot of specifics, but that famous scene at the end, it's 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 a meme, isn't it? You're out of order. He's uh, the whole darn system's out of order. Whatever it is that he says, uh, I like the scene at the end of Injustice for All. So that's going to be my one easy one that I'm going to say. You know, it's such a typical proto. It's a stereotypical courtroom scene, uh, and that's the one I'm going to pick for my number three. Isn't that? Because they gave that away on the commercials for it, and then after it, the judge shoots a gun, which is why I think you actually like that part. Oh, it's that Jack Warner with a gun. Am I right? right? Yeah, that's right. That's right, Kelly Wand. Wait, is it Jack Warner? I'm pretty oh, sure Jack Warner's... Uh, mm. In every courtroom movie, as the judge. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. Hey, do judges have guns? They should. Right. What if they kill someone? Then they have. There's a murder trial at the Dad, trial. I just thought of just mentioning that. I just thought of one I want to pick that one of you guys probably picked instead. Can I change mine? You're three. You can't just swap out. <sighs> no, because I like my other two a lot. Dad Gummit. Well, I hope one of I you picks this other. Yeah, I hate having to resort to injustice for all because there's one. Wait, that I'm... In, when he goes, you're out of order. The court's out of order. Like I, I, what? I, like I don't know that that's an actual legal. Thing can say like, well, that's the point. <laughs> All right, you're right. See, he's finally he's been defending like a guy who's guilty of murder because he's a he's a defender. He's not the prosecutor, and he ends up turning on his client and saying he's guilty. And I don't think you're supposed to do that as a lawyer. Wow. <laughs> yeah. See. Wait. So what happens? Now I'm interested. And then Jack Warner shoots him with a gun. Oh. I don't know. Isn't that where it just it's the fact that he made the decision, had the outburst, roll credits. But back in that era of movie making, right. all the that like they'd show the outburst in the trailer, like, "Hey, is he really good?" Out? Like right. in Norma Ray, she's like, "No, I mean the Navy's going to have to take me out," and then they don't take her out. <laughs> and Al Pacino we'll, isn't arrested. Like, we'll save that for our three by three of uh, favorite union moments, the Norma Ray thing. Oh, right. Like uh, all right, let's get past this injustice for all talk because I don't remember what I, well enough. What yeah. I liked about it was that there's a there's a shot of somebody naked in it. That's what I liked about it. There's nudity in injustice for all. Or yeah, but I I think it's like a, a piece of evidence or like somebody has a photograph of a nude person. And as a kid, uh, because I think one of my parents' friends had this on Laserdisc, I accidentally saw that and it's like oh. There's a there's a naked person, oh, right, or, or a guy, exactly. <laughs> it's it's actually Jack Warner. <laughs> well, I know he stands up, so maybe the robe is all he's wearing, and then he shoots the gun, which obviously would trigger the war. So Kelly, one, you didn't pick this, even though you remembered. So you've got three that are more awesome than yeah. and just for and you even remembered Jack Warner with the gun. Yeah. All right. Well, what is, wait, so what is your number three, then? Oh, yeah. Did you see that movie uh, Leonard Nimoy directed called The Good Mother with Diane Keaton? Good Lord, no. Why would I see that? I don't even know what it is. I saw it. It's when, it was when I was so young, I'd see, like, the stupidest shit. Like, oh, yeah, okay. Well, you know, when we were a kid, like, it's like when something came out, you go see it, right? Like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, we didn't have as much to choose right. from. Yeah, we kind of got screwed twice at birth, like fishes, because <laughs> everything was for adults when we were kids, and now everything's for kids. So both times. Oh, you're kids. right. Wow, Kelly Wand, man. I just 
Ding. Nice. Nice. If I may. Getting back to my number three courtroom order. I remember only seeing The Good Mother because it was on like a free HBO weekend or something. Right. That's another. See, another example of like, well, it's free. I'll watch an hour and a half of this. But you like courtroom movies. Yep. This is the one where um, Liam Neeson is Diane Keaton's lover. And then there's a scene that he they get in trouble for because their kid... Uh, no, Liam Neeson's taking a shower after they have sex. And, oh, God, I do remember. I know this movie. Go ahead. But the scene's not in the movie. That's the stupid fucking part. He's going, yeah, she came in and asked me if she could touch it. Remember that part? He goes, touch it. <laughs> And it's like a child abuse case thing. Yeah. yeah, And then she loses. It's like the judge goes, well, you're fucked. And then they take the kid away, and then that's the end of the movie. And then there's like a voiceover going, well, my life's kind of dumb now. (laughs) I guess I'll never see my kid again. Because she gets like the wrong judge or something. And then the movie's not about anything. Which kind of made me go, all right, well, this sums up courtroom movies in a nutshell. Like, you just watch the last five minutes, and you can skip the first hour and 20 and it's just surprise witnesses and shit. All right, good mother. Okay. It's the only time like like it's like that kind of movie, but it's the opposite verdict that like the heroine loses the case. Does that ever happen? So, is there a favorite courtroom scene there? Or yeah, just Tuchit. movie. Two Yeah, two right. right. <laughs> You're welcome, internet. <laughs> uh, Dingus, so you mentioned just because I mentioned my courtroom thing. So you were on a, a a jury for a murder trial. You said you were very proud of it. Tell us briefly, uh, if you don't mind, what was the deal there? What happened? Uh, well, you were proud of the murder, just to clarify. I wasn't proud of the murder. No, it was actually really, shit. it was really awful. It was a, it was the murder of a baby. It was a brutal, brutal thing to have to go through, even as a juror. Um, but I was just proud of actually doing something that had to do with civic duty it was a it was an awful thing to have to go through uh, just sitting through the whole trial was was horrid and and then having to um sit with my fellow jurors and you know including the one next to me the guy next to me who fell asleep often during the trial um mistrial it, right. it was it was really difficult it was a hugely difficult he thing fell. but uh but going through the process, I just, I can't, I can't, I don't know if I can explain it. it. It just made me feel proud to be part of this country. And and just going through that process and and going through the evidence and really, really just going through that situation of being in the jury room and deliberating through that whole process. It was 15 days, the whole thing. Was, the was deliberation or the thing. trial? The trial, the trial and deliberation, all over, all all together took uh, 15 days, um, and at that time, uh, you were paid five dollars every day. Wait, hold on a second. Fifteen, two, three, four. Seventy-five bucks. Dingus made seventy-five bucks off of that. Hey, if we uh, take another week. I actually didn't make anything because I was working for the Los Angeles Unified School District, or actually the Burbank Unified School District at the time. So when whatever you made, because because school districts often pay you for jury duty, you you literally have to turn in your check to the school district at the end of that time. Oh, so you're getting your paid your your normal daily rate, but whatever you get paid by the court system, you then turn into the school district, and they sort of you know 
put that back into the system. Right. But just the, that whole process of, of going through it, as difficult as it was, and it was it was emotionally just devastating. Um, but it just made me feel really proud. I don't know how to describe it. I think you would you would feel prouder, and you would have actually done your civic duty if you'd nudged the guy awake. So yeah, I did. I that did. It must have been over so frustrating. Oh my god, I can only imagine. It was usually frustrating, and and I started it as an alternate, and so I'm sitting there at the end, and there's no distinction legally uh, during the trial between an alternate and a regular juror. And you have to sit there and listen, just as as much as any other juror does and if something happens then you're going to get bumped up and it just so happened that one of the jurors got into a car accident on one of the days of the trial and luckily i'd been paying attention you're all um, yeah and i got bumped up and it's not necessarily something you want to happen because it was just a brutal thing to go through but it was like you said tom uh I was literally sitting there and nudging this guy next to me, and he's some retiree for some, from something else, and another guy was a business owner who was complaining about it, and he just wanted to do the trial because he thought it would be interesting, but he was mad that it was going past 10 days. So it was it was infuriating, but it was also just in, invigorating as far as being a citizen is concerned. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, as just uh, shoot you. That's not true. Don't Canadian? Don't you have to wear those wigs if you're on jury duty in Canada? Please don't uh, undignify the mission of the mission accomplished. <laughs> okay, Kelly Wand. Dingus, what is then with your insight into courtrooms? What then would be your number three pick for a favorite courtroom scene? I said undignify. <laughs> Well, the unfortunate thing, and and now you've suddenly made me think of something that uh, I probably should have chosen. Um, the the courtrooms that I was in and have been in are just really sad looking little corporate spaces. They're not those awesome Law and Order, dark wood kind of looking things. And and the, my three choices are all fairly absurd. Um, hmm. uh, number number three. Uh, Here's a quote from my number three. It's never stop fighting till the fight is done. What? That's a bumper sticker. That's some That's football movie. <laughs> That's never stop. We probably started as a script about football, and they went, "Hey, we need a courtroom thing because we can't afford the field that day. <laughs> we can't afford a courtroom." Change all the word touchdowns to defendant. Dingus, you're not doing a few good men, are you? Oh no, no. This is um, this is from the movie The Untouchables, and oh. It's the- uh, the courtroom scene at the end. And um, I, I love the way this plays out because it's so goofy. It's so much uh, better than the Eisenstein courtroom scene. It really is. I like that Brian De Palma used, uh, just cr- totally cribbed from him. Yeah. Um, so uh, so what happens in this is that they're trying to they're trying uh, Capone for tax evasion. And um, in the midst of the courtroom proceedings... Uh, Kevin Costner takes out one of Capone's main henchmen into the hall and ends up having a, a, a dust-up with him and then finds this list of jurors who've been paid off. And he has a meeting with the judge, and then the judge comes in and he, he tells the bailiff to switch the juries, which is utterly goofy. I mean, just the idea of, we've gone through this whole trial, and now I'm going to tell you to take this <laughs> You can't do yeah. that, Dingus? <laughs> I don't think you can. I 
really don't think you so. You can switch defendants and juries, but not <laughs> both in the same <laughs> It's just so great that it's it's a it's a great dramatic flourish, but the idea that procedurally we're going to take our jury and we're going to swap it with Judge Sanderson's jury over there, and it's going to be fine. He's on vacation. <laughs> Uh, but I love how that plays out because the the I think the DA then asks Kevin Costner to tell him, and he says, "I told him his name was in the ledger. The ledger is is the the main piece of evidence that's saying who gets all the payouts for alcohol." And um and the the guy says he wasn't in the ledger. And then there's this great push in on the judge with this dour look on his face. So he clearly has been on the take. Um, but and then there, there's this great meltdown of Capone where he's he's just going crazy, and uh, and uh, Elliot Ness is saying never stop fighting until the fight is done. So I love I love the climax in the courtroom, and the switching of the juries and the untouchables. All right. Well, it wouldn't be a three by three if Dingus didn't get in an untouchables mention. So Absolutely. he liked the far fetchedness of it, even though. Yep. Well, that's what that's what I was sort of getting at before Kelly Wan is all courtroom scenes have to be far fetched. Right, you right. can't have an actual courtroom scene in a movie because everyone would fall asleep or leave the movie, like the juror that Dingus had to contend with. Um, all right, so here's my number two. I might get in trouble for this, but I'm going to stand by this. I will defend this one till my dying day. Get it? It's a room in a courthouse. There is a judge present. <laughs> Just because it's in another country, and I don't know how their legal system works, I'm going to say that if you go into Iran and you have a man and a woman sitting in front of a judge to introduce a motion or whatever that they're going to have their marriage separated, it is a damn you, Tom. Wait, now I I object. I object. (laughs) Overruled. Uh, See what I did? Uh, Now, damn me because you picked this, or damn me because you think it doesn't count as a courtroom scene. Uh, da- damn me, because I didn't even think about it. Uh, it's not strictly what I'm talking about when it comes to courtrooms, but it's right. perfect. It's absolutely right. perfect. Well, the opening of a separation, which was uh, Dingus and I ranked very highly in our favorite movies of last year list. Uh, the opening of a separation is a man and a woman addressing the camera. So addressing us, and the camera represents a judge in a courtroom where they are introducing a motion that they want to get separated. And this is their last recourse. I mean, the movie is set in Iran. I don't know much about the Iranian legal system. You don't have to. It's, you know, a separation is very much about human relationships and not the Iranian legal system, even though it figures prominently into the movie. But the opening is them addressing the camera, each making their respective case about the problem they're dealing with with their marriage. And what happens is they make their case, and then the judge is like, well, okay, here's my ruling. Uh, you know, I think he even declares them separated. And then they leave. And the rest of the movie is about us seeing this case sort of acted out, seeing the results of this, and us having to judge, you know, us being left to decide on our own who, if anyone, is at fault, uh, how do we feel about the fallout of this, um, but it all opens with that courtroom scene where you just have two people immensely frustrated with the situation talking to us, the audience. And I love how that starts and how it plays into the rest of the movie. So there's my number two is the, I guess, hearing or administrative hearing or whatever's going on in front of the judge in the beginning of a separation. Kelly, one, you still haven't seen that, have you? No, I don't see movies where the title gives away the end of the movie. <laughs> it's the beginning of the movie. Uh, then I'll uh-huh. 
<laughs> okay. Uh, all uh, right. That's so beautiful because you you just see the machinery of the legal system in in a way that is not uh, glorified in any way. And it, and there's so much more. I mean, I don't want to spoil anything about a separation, but there's so much more stuff that's introduced, and you see so much more of the machinery as the situation changes over time, and how the machinery involves religion and morality and family ties. Uh, and, and, and it's so much insight, specifically, I mean, even though it's set in Iran, it's just so much insight into human interaction and how these yeah. characters deal with each other. Um, Damn it, Tom, that's a really good choice. Damn it. Maybe I should have put my number one. Well, you, one of you guys better than pick the runner-up that I wished I'd picked instead of Injustice for All. What is it? So, well, we'll see. Uh, Give me a hint. It begins with the letter T. Uh, yeah, save it. We'll see. So, Kelly, one. What is your number two pick? Does it begin with the letter T? Is it wait. two words beginning with T? Oh, that's the first word, right? <laughs> is that what begins means? There's it's so many rough. different interpretations based on legal briefs. <laughs> the three is, is is. Does one? Does your number one or number two begin with the letter T? I'm gonna say no. That gummit. Nobody picked True Grit. Oh, I thought it was the verdict you were going to say. When I was thinking of judges with guns, I was thinking of Jeff Bridges when when uh, Haley Satterfield first meets uh, Rooster Cogburn. Actually, when Matty Ross first meets Rooster Cogburn, and he's testifying in that trial at the beginning of True Grit. That's what I wished I had picked instead of Justice for All. That's not a courtroom, though. Yeah, it is. Are you crazy? Yeah, it is. Like of course. courtroom. It's, it's a cabin in the woods. <laughs> Kelly Wand. All right, what do you got then for your number two if it's not True Grit? Yeah, I don't what are you talking about? What's wrong with you? Yeah, did you ever see uh, this movie called Anatomy of a Murder? Yeah, it's one of those grandpa movies I don't watch. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm talking about. There's this scene in it. I don't even remember anything else about it. But there's this like five minute dissertation where uh, the guy's all, "All right, you got." You. It's about a rape case, and then he's all, "There's some piece of evidence where they go, what was the undergarment you just talked about?" He's all panties. Oh, you expect the subject to come up again? Yes, sir. There's a certain light connotation attached to panties. Can we find other... Like, they talk about it for ten minutes. Like, panties. Can't say panties. And then it ends with the judge going, when I was... No, it was like a lawyer going, when I was overseas, Your Honor, I learned a French word. I'm afraid that might be suggestive. And then the judge goes, most French words are... Uh, I love this, that this is your this is your recollection of the courtroom scene. Yeah, in I forget the whole movie except that. Like, <laughs> oh, it's French. Uh, like that. You're supposed to watch the movie and they have a little five minute comedy act about French. I have a dumb question, Kelly yeah. Wand. Is Anatomy of a Murder a Hitchcock movie? No, it sounds like one. It was a okay. one. Of, it's a, it's Otto Preminger. What? Oh. All right. Rado Preminger getting that reaction to his legacy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not Hitchcock. I worked really hard, though, Tom. <laughs> Sorry, his ghost is channeling me. Or, Kelly Wan's number two is Anatomy of a Murder. Yeah, yeah, French epic. Steak. All right. Well, I guess, what do you what do you got? Do you have a line from your number two that is not true grit? Sure, I do. All right. What do you got? Uh, would your honor kindly explain to the jury that since the district attorney has placed me in the position of a witness that I'm permitted as the defense attorney to cross-examine myself? Oh, you know what? God, that sounds so familiar. Kelly Wan, do you know it? 
Is it that one where Woody Harrelson is uh, the penthouse? Guy? Oh, People vs. Larry Flint? Is that right, Dingus? Thank you. No. Oh, rats. You know what? I, I, think I can't I, imagine you've seen this. Really? I mean, that line sounds so familiar. That's because they all have that line. <laughs> Your Honor. <laughs> That's my question right. of every quarter. Well, Dingus, what is it then? Uh, this is from a movie called The Lady from Shanghai. Oh, the Orson Welles. No, I've seen it. I love the famous well, shot of, uh, is it Rita Hayworth? Yeah. God, no, I love that movie, of course. Oh, good. That's, oh, good. That's a, that is a grandpa movie, though. Yeah, I, that's why I, I wouldn't think sexy you'd grandpa. I've seen a few, yeah, I've seen a few sexy grandpa movies. No, I've seen, yeah. I, I don't, so yeah, explain the same thing. Uh, well, this is, you know, my number one has, uh, has the, this, uh, in a goofy way. Um, and I thought that that's where this came from. But this movie, uh, The Lady from Shanghai, which I just saw within the last couple of months, uh, easily predates my number one. And it's it's a guy, um, the defense attorney, uh, cross-examining himself. And it's Everett Sloan. Um, the, the, the character's the name is Arthur Bannister. Uh, is sitting there at the witness stand. And he's just doing a cross examination of himself, and the whole the whole courtroom scene is, is great. But this specific moment of him cross examining himself and saying, you know, question, da 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 da, answer, da 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 da, is just perfect. I now know Dingus is number one, by the way. <laughs> yep. Uh, wait, right. cross examine where the other, where like the prosecutor, where they go, oh, hostile witness. Like, does he call himself a hostile witness? Well, the, the prosecutor is called him as a witness. Right. You know? So when the other side asks oh, him questions, right, okay. it's cross. Yeah. But it can be your own team. If it's <laughs> if it's a witness that the other side called. In the game the, of judicial system. Now, by the way, I wonder if this is as entertaining to lawyers as it is to, like, scientists when we discuss science on this the podcast. podcast or the movies? <laughs> no, when we're discussing legal stuff, when we're explaining to each other what cross-examination means. I don't know. Are there lawyers out there chuckling at our I inanity? laugh. Well, like, I'm entertained by stupid people, so I would think yeah. <laughs> we're entertained to them. You would think, I doubt yeah. scientists would have the time of day for this. I'd like to think Cormac McCarthy listens to podcasts <laughs> like religiously, like, oh, they're so good this week. Fucking Chernobyl guys gotta catch it. So I don't know if <laughs> 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 shitting myself. Uh, anyway. friscalating. All right, so uh, Lady of Shanghai Dingus, very good. Grandpa oh, movie. Grandpa. Hey, they're all grandpa movies. It's like yeah. a dead genre. Now, my number one is in black and white. But it's not a grandpa movie. See, it's a little tricky. So uh, this is when I think back of courtroom scenes that, that have a pivotal moment in a movie. Uh, I don't remember them as vividly as I remember this one. This one really stands out for me. And it's mainly because Tony Shalhoub is so freaking good. Like when Tony Shalhoub gets some, he's like a terrier with a comic role. He just like sinks his teeth <laughs> into it and tears it up. He's amazing to watch. I'm so fascinated watching Tony Shalhoub be funny. And his role as Freddie Riedenschneider in The Man Who Wasn't There, he's the lawyer who gets hired. Um, he's just, I love watching him in this movie. So Man Who Wasn't There, uh, and I didn't realize all this until I rewatched the scene, but Man Who Wasn't There, of course, is it's about Billy Bob Thornton as, as a barber. Mm. He's an ordinary man, and he does this terrible crime early on in the movie, but he doesn't get caught for it. 
However, later on in the movie, he gets prosecuted for a crime he actually didn't do. Uh, and the, uh, the, the guy that is defending him uh, early on in the movie, uh, when, who's working with him for the crime he didn't do, who someone else is being tried for, uh, is Tony Shalhoub. And he hires Tony Shalhoub to be the lawyer. It's for his wife, to be his wife's lawyer. Uh, and then later on, when he is, is, is uh, accused of another crime, Tony Shalhoub comes back to help him again there. And he's, he's hired in both instances. So in the second courtroom scene with Tony Shalhoub, uh, I didn't realize this, but what Tony Shalhoub is doing in this scene is unpacking the actual point of the man who wasn't there, of the movie. It's the Coen brothers in a courtroom scene kind of explaining to the viewers their movie. Uh, and Man Who Wasn't There is a tough, it's, it's a weird Coen brothers movie to watch. It's kind of slow. It doesn't have a lot of humor. It's very stylistic. Um, but as Tony Shalhoub is explaining when he's making his case... Uh, it's about a man who has lost his place in the universe. And this specific language is used in Tony Shalhoub's uh, case to the jury, whatever you call it. Testament. No, <laughs> we'll say testament. Testimony? Testimony, yeah, but he's the, the lawyer. Theology school. Oh. <laughs> so alibi, no. But he has this great line where he says, and the thing is, Tony Shalhoub is talking, but also Billy Bob Thornton's voiceover is playing over Tony Shalhoub's speech, so you're getting this almost duet going. Uh, but the point, oh, Tony Shalhoub has this great line where, he's tell, where he tells the jury, don't look at the facts, but look at the meaning of the facts, and the facts have no meaning. And that right there is, I think, the point of Man Who Wasn't There. This kind of existential, you just can't know anything, almost absurdity. Uh, I love that about the movie, and I love how the courtroom scene really expresses what the movie is about uh, in, in this very kind of self-aware way. So there's my number one pick, is the second courtroom scene in Man Who Wasn't There that explains the meaning of the movie. Hey, you know who would have been way better in the lead for that movie? Bruce Willis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I said that's actually because I did rewatch that scene. That's why I, I brought up Billy Bob Thornton. Uh, Interesting. All right. Wait, Wait, weren't they in a movie together? They were in Armageddon. That's your Bandits. fucking link, you. Fuck. No, that and Bandits. Armageddon and Bandits. Was that what you were thinking of? Is that your favorite movie with both of them? Bandits, really? Mm. Really, Tom? <laughs> you gonna lob me that shit on the internet in front of company? Outrageous. But no, uh, it's a good choice. I, that is an awesome line, actually. If I haven't mentioned Kelly Wan, there is a Criterion version of Armageddon, just so you know. Is there one for Man Who Wasn't There? There should be. Interesting. I guess that makes Armageddon a better movie. You should be your number one. <laughs> Got your two favorite actors in it playing each other. But Kelly Wan, you like Man Who Wasn't There, right? Yeah. But I think it's funny, so I don't... Well, not Raising Arizona funny. Uh, no, like it's weird. Like, Do you remember all that weird parts of it stuff funny. in it? <laughs> Which one? Yeah, yeah, I like that. The alien. I love all that weird stuff. Yeah, well, there's no alien. There's just like a, a, a flying saucer, and there's flying saucer imagery. And I've forgotten the weird scene where James Gandolfini's widow shows up and is, is just prattling on about this UFO conspiracy stuff yeah. and the government. Uh, I like the whole movie. I think it's yeah, good. Yeah, too. And it's beautiful, too. And God. look at it, yeah. 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 I don't know. It's, it's not a lesser Collins, or is it? Do you put it between Darjeeling Limited and Dark Star? <laughs> JK. All right, Kelly Wan, what is your number one pick for a favorite courtroom scene in a movie? 
that's not uh, true grit. Oh. Uh, so technically not... It was, in a, it was in a room in True Grit. It was a... Uh, it was a lintel. What? That's totally a courtroom in True Grit. You're, you're off your rocker. Probably. All right. My number one is... Uh, in Inherit the Wind. I like the part where they debate... Oh, what Bible. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> to Grandpa? I, by their... Uh, all right. Tom, Kelly would like to be treated as a sponge. Stop it. What is that from? <laughs> Treated as a sponge. What? He gets it. I get it. Wait. Tom doesn't get it. I get it. Wait. Your Honor, Kelly don't let me talk anymore. Talking Objection. about himself in third. I'm gonna cross-examine myself. <laughs> Kelly Wan, get the fuck off the internet. Yes, Your Honor. <laughs> so really, inherit the wind. You're picking a play. Yeah. Isn't that a play first of all, and then a movie? Or do I have that wrong? Plays. Plays are 3D movies. You're out. That's the ultimate 3D. Without glasses, they're better. So, all right, inherit the wind. Because I've never... it's the only movie where they debate shit. They debate the history of the universe in in, in a court of law, and it breaks a guy's uh, uh, brain. It, they don't do that in. The... I don't know what the medical term is for that. I know the legal term is break, bro- brain broke. <laughs> You know what? It's the last podcast I'm doing. No, wait. you got to at least come back for Prometheus next week. All right. That's the last podcast. All right. Uh, all right. So, Kelly Wan's number one courtroom scene, mm-hmm. Inherit the Wind. Dingus, have you even seen Inherit the Wind? No, I don't know what that is. That's Tom doesn't cool. like it because he... It's a Scopes trial thing. No, it's everybody... It's uh, That would be... That's an example of why you can't have movies set in courtrooms. I've never seen Inherit the Wind, but I cannot imagine that it's not one of the most boring movies anybody I can... I can't watch. wait to hear you hold forth on the movies I haven't seen. <laughs> Go ahead. How boring is it, Tom? Continue. It is so boring. I'll bet it's more boring than My Dinner with Andre, which I also haven't seen. <laughs> wow. You're dumb. Um, hey, uh, the Scopes guy is Dick York. Does that make you want to see it at all? From I Dream of Genie? No, from Bewitched, fuck. Very <laughs> Hagman's Dream of Genie. And Adam's Bewitched. family. <laughs> Bewitched, fuck. Bewitched, fuck. I love that Kelly Wong can go from Inherit to Win to I Dream of Genie. You <laughs> did. I didn't do any of that. What? Dingus. <laughs> I got your sponge joke, and Tom's a fool, right? Is, is, this, right. is, that, is that a line from Moonrise Kingdom? Dang, 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 dang. That's how you talk. That'd be a lesson to you. <laughs> Your Honor, Dingus, make the ruling and sentence Tom to uh, not have to listen to me anymore. Kelly wants sustained. Dingus, what's a quote from your number one pick for a courtroom, awesome courtroom scene in a movie that's not true grit? I object, Your Honor. This trial is a travesty. It's a travesty of a mockery of a sham, of a mockery of a travesty of two mockeries of a sham. I move for a mistrial. Can you do it in the voice a little better? You know what movie that is? Yeah, I know what he's doing. Of course. Oh, come on. You guys should just get it's it. When it. It's the thing about the cross-examining himself. Imagine a comic, a manic comic doing this. Like no Gallagher? Comedy. <laughs> or like Bob He's a thinking man's Gallagher. He's cross-examining a watermelon. <laughs> uh, jury duty? Probably sure is manic. Uh, Kelly Wan, I'm disappointed in you. Really? I don't it's know. Like you, would I, you would know. Dingus, what is it? Bedroom window. <laughs> it's not a grand movie. <laughs> yeah, here, Dingus is doing it. Dingus, go ahead. Go that, ahead. Dingus, I, I, that title's never been screamed <laughs> out in anything. 
You're welcome, Gutenberg. Bible. Go ahead, Dingus. You you had. You're, you're welcome, Gutenberg Bible. <laughs> this is uh, it's a great next to last podcast, but a terrible. I object, Your Honor. Did you hear that, Kelly Wan? Did you hear what he was yeah, doing? That's his Irish Jew. <laughs> so is it bananas though? I can't. I'm not sure. I know what movie. Oh yeah, yeah, it's bananas. It is bananas. Okay, so Dingus, yeah. So tell yeah. us what's the scene and why have you picked it? All right, it's it's. Oh man, uh, I thought that uh, Lady from Shanghai was going to be my number one until I rewatched the banana scene and the banana scene where um, Woody Allen as the uh, as both a citizen of the United States and the dictator of San Marcos is uh, on trial as being a traitor of the United States. And he has to cross-examine himself at one point, which is what I chose for um, comic timing, I think, where he's, where he's cross-examining himself and running in and out of the witness box like a manic crazy man. But the whole sequence of that courtroom scene is just a great send-up of various courtroom tropes. And, and I think, given how Tom feels about courtroom scenes, I think watching Bananas again, well, a lot of it would be annoying to him, the way the courtroom stuff is handled would be great for him. All right. I'll, I'll take that under advisement, Counselor. Hey, Go you know, right that's ahead. a really cool banana trick. Bangkok. Uh. Or as I call it, Benangkok. Anyway, uh, let's see. <laughs> Runners up. No one picked Malice, the uh, I, am a, I Am God thing. That's a deposition. Uh, yeah, wait, but it, probably, it takes place in a courtroom. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't, he doesn't. Isn't he even sitting behind like the whole banister thing? Or no, is he at a conference room table? I don't Disclosure, know. Disclosure, is that a courtroom? Ah, very Oh, good. you know what has a great courtroom I totally wish I'd picked? It's what? actually one of my uh, Wild Things. has an awesome one. I love that one. In a swimming pool? Yeah, are you talking about... That has, it has a good threesome scene and lesbians <laughs> and courtroom. But the Bill Murray was the lawyer where he's like wearing the neck. Brace. Come on, that's good shit. Bill Murray is in Wild Things? Fuck yeah. No way, get out of here. He steals it from the great, uh, what's her name? The Denise chick- Richards. No, Nev no, Campbell. Nev Campbell. Nev Campbell, right. Kevin Nev Bacon. Campbell. Matt Dillon. Kevin Bacon's dick's in it, too. So Ke- whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Have the words the great Nev Campbell ever been said? <laughs> Have the words Bacon's dicks ever been said? <laughs> <laughs> next to each other. So Kevin Bacon's dick has a Kevin Bacon number of zero. <laughs> Worst podcast ever. Worst podcast ever tonight. Uh, any other runners up? So when when uh, I was talk when you mentioned a separation and that made me think about how uh, courtrooms in Los Angeles look with just like file cabinets and just not at all like dark wood and cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just made me think of Aaron Brockovich and the way those courtrooms look. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. I feel like we're going to hit the the listeners will have good alternates. So yeah, yeah. Let us know. Well, there's a lot of courtroom scenes that I just am uninterested in. So, uh, yeah, let us know your choices. Are you disinterested in them or un? No, completely uninterested. If I was disinterested in them, that would be something different and it would be entirely appropriate for courtroom scenes, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's like when Tom taught me the difference between entitled and titled. I did. <laughs> but even less interesting. Uh, let's do a three-by-three three next week. Yeah. Based on tonight's success. No, so this is based on... this is a, How about Klingon courtrooms? 
See, no. that's a dig at you, Tom. How about courtrooms on the Battlestar Galactica? Mm. Oh, no, it's on Colonial One. Dead gum. It's also not the... God. <laughs> Wait a minute. If you're saying the ship, it's the Titanic. Do you think Star Wars would have been a big hit if it had been called the Star Wars? Or the Star Wars? Or it is called eh. that. Everybody knows that it's called oh, that. Oh, there's only one? I'm not saying it. Like that oh. would have turned off Joe Q. Public. All right, let's do next week. This is a, this is going to be an easy one. Uh, I'm basically giving you guys a blank check. You ready for this? Uh, I recently watched a movie that had a scene at night, and they just did the stupid thing where they just set up a big old huge bright light, and they just aim the camera like right down on the light, and you could totally see the light like shining down. And I guess their lighting guy thought it was like, oh, this will be the moon or whatever. Like nighttime, sloppy nighttime scenes are so annoying. You cannot just put up a light and have dudes walking around and, hey, it's nighttime. On the other hand, you can't do like a Chernobyl Diaries thing where you can't see a, a thing, and it just looks sloppy. It's just people running around in the dark, whatever. Uh, now, I'm not really concerned about the technical stuff and the lighting. What I want from you guys are just three great scenes set at night where the night somehow figures prominently into it. Like there's something very different about nighttime, about the way light works. Uh, you know, it's not just a matter of being dark. Like sound is different at night. There's just there's a whole different tone and feel to nighttime. So what I want from you are just three great nighttime scenes, specific scenes. Uh, I got an awesome one. Well, oh, save it, save it for uh, next week. So you will come back and join us next week. Is that right, Kelly Wand? To listen. <laughs> but we I need, want to hear the Prometheopsis. We need to... okay. We need a Prometheopsis, and we need your three by three of nighttime scenes. Then I don't have to say anything else. That's true. Yeah, we'll discuss the movie, and uh, so will you at least come see Prometheus with us? Yeah. Okay. So we're all going to see. If you're listening, we're all going to see Prometheus next week. We would like you to to join us in that, and then we will reconvene here and talk about it, along with uh, our three by three of favorite nighttime scenes. Kelly, want anything interesting happen in Canada these days? Oh yeah, yeah. You want to hear it now or never <laughs> or in a minute? Yeah, no, I guess you ask because you want to hear it. That's you. Yeah, if you have, like, say, an anecdote about Canada, I don't know oh, if you there's mean a word can- anecdote. Awesome, yeah. What do you have for us? Can- anecdote. Uh, yeah, so the last couple of weeks, I hate to admit this, but yes, I'm finally homesick a little for fucking stupid-ass, angry, heartless America, the abusive husband that I always come back to. But specifically but Los Angeles, right? No, everywhere but L.A. Okay, home. the rest of America. Okay. Not that homesick for L.A. But you guys. Well, the Valley doesn't count. Well, right, right. No, it's not. It's not Los Angeles proper. I don't think. No, at least Burbank isn't. Right. I'm. I'm homesick for Burbank, but not so much uh, Whittier. Anyway, uh, so I'm having lunch with this work dude from Edmonton, and since I'm super homesick, at one point I go, "Hey, kind of sucks. Our countries were never at war. It would have made a cool board game." And he's all, "Actually, we burned down the White House in 1812." <laughs> and I go. Uh, we're taught in school that was the British, and he's all right, because you'd feel too humiliated to find out it was us. So U.S. history textbooks are full of lies. And then a guy sitting at the table, like this beefy, like, salt-of-the-earth dude, goes, Yeah, sorry about that, eh? Like, he overheard us and and went right. He, like, agreed with it. And then I went, No, nah, I'd burn it, too. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Secret, if the Secret whoa. Service is listening, we did not hear that. We don't know who this guy is. Prank, prank podcast. Prank call, prank call. Prank podcaster. <laughs> no, if it was 1812, now it's fine. Oh, I see. Well, you know, I think Ted Nugent tried to apply sort of qualifiers to what he said, and look where it got him. Did you see that preview for the movie about time travel where they don't... No, why would I, why would I watch a... Tri- oh, wait, what? 
What was you? It was like a Sundance looking kind of movie. No, if you're talking about Looper, then you've already said way too much. Are you talking about the Ryan Johnson thing with with Joseph Gordon Levitt? Looper. <laughs> Why are you laughing at the name of a movie? Oh, and another chick, she said American maps cheat the latitude so that the U.S. looks bigger than it is. There is this whole weird, uh, I'm going to just use the word Mercator projection, even though I don't know what it means. But there's this whole weird thing about the proportion of the land masses being screwy because of it, because of how it looks when you take a globe and put it on a flat surface. So I think she's on to something. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Kelly one is latitude the one that goes left and right, or is it the one that goes up and down? I remember they showed us a, a kid's film in school where the guy goes, question. no, no, wait. He goes, I remember it's a ladder, and that's how I remember it's this. But I thought, wait, ladders have vertical and horizontal, so why are they? <laughs> Permission to treat Kelly Wand as hostile. <laughs> hmm. All right, Kelly Wand. For that. Take a number. All right, so uh, that is this week's podcast. My name is Tom Chick. I have been joined by Christian Martovsky. It's Christian Martovsky. Mm, I don't think so. And Kelly Wand. Sometimes dead is better. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes dead is better. Sometimes dead is better. Sometimes dead is better. That's some butter. I'll take this. But also as a yes. And finally, the percussion family. <laughs>